This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. Professor Ruley, God continues to bless us with extraordinary people, and I am very grateful that you are all here to help us to celebrate Professor Ruley and to support the vision of the Praxis Award. I do need to recognize some particular people for a word of gratitude, starting with our president, Father Peter Donahue, for, for spending some time with us this evening, so thank you, Father. I also want to um, point out that we couldn't celebrate today without the financial support of a number of units at the, at the university, beginning with the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences, the College of Nursing, the College of Engineering, and the Villanova School of Business. So to the deans of those colleges, Dean Linda Meyer, who's here, uh, Dean Majidi, Dean Fitzpatrick, and Dean Gabriel, my deepest appreciation for your generosity and support. I also want to recognize my faculty colleagues in the ethics program who helped to, to pull this off. Uh, professors Mark Wilson, Albert Shin, Kevin Vanderschel, Peter Wicks, and Brett Wilmot, as well as the members of the ethics steering committee who are here, Sally Scholes, Catherine Gettysoltis, Sarah Von Rickman, and Stephen Napier. So we need to give a round of applause, of course, to the person that, um, you know, the people, actually, in this case, who take care of everything behind the scenes so that this happens. So I'd like a round of applause for Mrs. Peggy Elder, my administrative assistant. <laughs> She's most responsible for this, but also, um, you should know, Peggy started in February, and we planned this a year in advance. So uh, she picked up from where uh, Mary Coulter left off when she retired in February, so let's give a round of applause for Mary. <laughs> told me since she um, did some of the preliminary logistics, she had to be here. So she's here. So I'm glad to have you there. Finally, I want to thank our student workers, Arabella Escobar and Natalia Castillo, who have, as always, provided Peggy with ready assistance. So at this point, before I introduce our um, recipient, I'd like to invite uh, Dr. Delinda Meyer, interim dean of the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences, to offer some Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you very much, Dr. Dory, for giving me this opportunity. I really won't be very long because he really didn't come here to listen to me. Um, I understand that this is the ninth 
award to be presented, and it is perhaps along with the ethics bowl for the students, the signature event of our ethics program, which has been so ably led by Dr. Dorley for 20 years now. No, no, am I aging here? You are, Okay, sorry. 10 years, 10 years, but it will be 20 before you know it, trust me. Uh, uh, in fact, I mean, that's, that's uh, a demonstration of just how the ethics program has thrived under Mark's leadership with events such as this, which represent and demonstrate something that I think the ethics program, and indeed the curricula of the university in general, demonstrate every day, which is that you can talk about ethics all you want, but what really matters is how you put that into practice. And we spent a great deal of time here in Villanova considering what is the ethical way to act ethically. How can we apply enduring principles like justice or equality to very transitory or rapidly changing social, economic, and political situations? The kinds of ethical issues addressed by uh, church fathers such as the St. Augustine are in many ways radically different from the kinds of ethical issues that we address today, and yet there are clear continuities that we seek to instill an understanding of in our students. Uh, let's take the example of justice, certainly an abiding concern in religious and secular ethical thought, and here we have our honoree today who really demonstrates one powerful way to put justice into practice. Uh, and uh, as uh, somebody who was involved with community legal services for, I just learned, 20 years before he began his distinguished career at Penn Law. So I love the word that describes this award, praxis. Uh, it is an expression of our faith that ethical principles are proven and reinforced every time we put them in practice in order to address the problems of a rapidly changing world. So uh, I appreciate this occasion, the opportunity to uh, express my admiration for both the program and its leader and now this honorary Dr. Gurley. So, thank you. Professor Brian Oda of Chemistry, Professor Karen Hollis of the Department of English, 
Professor Nick Rangione of the Villanova School of Business, and finally Michelle Dempsey, Professor in the School of Law. And I serve as the selection committee. So we met last April, and we chose this year's recipient. It's our tradition, so that's the process. It's our tradition to ask the person who nominates the uh, recipient to introduce that person. However, Professor Brian Volta, who nominated you, Professor Rudy, uh, fell over spring break and severely injured himself. So that he's not, he's not able to be here because he's not supposed to move. So it's a very severe injury. So he asked me to introduce you. So I'm going to do that. So Louis S. Rulli is a public interest lawyer and academic who has spent his distinguished career providing access to justice for the poor and training young professionals to serve the public interest. After receiving his law degree in 1974, he began his career at Community Legal Services of Philadelphia that same year. He held several positions at CLS and in 1986 was promoted to its executive director. He held that post until 1995 when he joined the faculty of the University of Pennsylvania Law School. He is currently a practice professor of law and the director of clinical programs. His great love is community legal services. Its mission is to help low-income Philadelphia residents obtain equal access to justice by providing them with advice and representation in civil legal matters, advocating for their legal rights, and conducting community education about the legal issues that affect them." End quote. In 1991, the Hastings Constitutional Law Quarterly, after a national review of legal services programs, concluded that CLS is the most successful legal services provider in the nation. During Rulli's tenure as executive director, CLS advanced its mission with a long list of legal victories. As one example, in the 1990 case of Sullivan versus Sedley, the Supreme Court of the United States held that the method of determining disability for children under the Supplemental Security Income Program was illegal and ordered Social Security to rewrite its regulations. The case was the largest class action ever won against the Social Security Administration. After the ruling, CLS established the Advocating on Behalf of Children project to address the needs of disabled children. In 1995, Professor Rulli became a full-time academic and has taught courses titled Poverty Law and Lawyering in the Public Interest, in addition to several clinical courses. A quick glance at his CV will show that his academic interests directly align with professional ethics as applied in the field of law. Field of law. He has received a long list of awards. Notable examples of the Philadelphia Bar Association's Andrew Hamilton Award in 1993, the Pennsylvania Bar Lifetime Achievement Award in 2003, and most recently in 2012, the Beacon Award for Exemplary Faculty Commitment to Pro Bono Work. In short, Louis S. Rulli meets all the criteria for this award. I am pleased that we at Illinois University can add the Praxis Award in Professional Ethics to the list of recognitions he has received for his distinguished career serving the public interest. So in a few minutes, I'm going to present the award to Professor Rulli, and we'll hear his remarks. But first, and he doesn't know this, I'd like to introduce two people who have agreed to share with us a bit about his work and its impact on the people of Philadelphia. So I welcome together, I suppose, unless you want to come up one at a time, 
Um, this is Pat McCarr, current Executive Director of Community Legal Services of Philadelphia, and Professor Vera Segal, Director of Clinical Services and Professor of Law here at Villanova. So we are just thinking about that. I'll go first. I'm Kathy Carr. I'm the, I'm the current um, director, as uh, Professor Dorley just said, at Community Legal Services. Um, well, for those of you who don't know um, Professor Ruli, you're in for a treat this afternoon um, because you're about to see what a fabulous speaker he is. Um, he gives speeches that rivet and inspire. So my job here is to be really quick and turn over the floor to, to Vera and then to him. Um, however, one of the things that Boo does not talk a lot about is himself. Um, he's as humble as he is accomplished and um, voice he accomplished. So I will talk a little bit about Lou. Um, I know Lou because he was uh, one of my first bosses as a young attorney. Um, the truth is that he was a young attorney then too, but he seemed much older and wiser. And um, I was really lucky that I was able to count on him to teach me the practice of law. Um, what Lou brings to legal practice is integrity, intelligence, care, and excellence. He brings it to everything he does. Uh, and I was a, the beneficiary of that. Um, and he has spent his life, as, as Professor Doyle said, working for the most vulnerable people, the people who really have the least in our rich culture, um, people who have the least uh, in terms of money, the least in terms of opportunity, and often the least in terms of justice. Um, for over three decades, Lou has worked um, to improve lives for those kinds of people um, and to improve the justice system specifically as it impacts on them. And Lou is one of those people who, um, and you know, you probably all know some people like this, who you wonder how the heck they do everything that they do. Um, and do they ever sleep? And that's how I feel about Lou Ruling. He um, is in charge of the legal clinic at Penn Law School, um, and he teaches a whole bunch of clinical classes. He's in charge of everybody, he manages it. Um, but that's just like his day job, that he's very, very involved with bar associations. The Philadelphia Bar Association counts on him to be at all of their cabinet meetings and bar association meetings. We've got the uh, executive director of the Philadelphia Bar Association here tonight. Um, because he is somebody who they want, he's, they call him the public interest czar because um, he's the person to turn to for questions about public interest problems, public interest issues, um, and you know you'll get the very best of advice. Um, he is incredibly present still in the public interest world where he used to practice and lead, but somehow, even though he's now an academic, he's also at, at the monthly meetings of all the executive directors of the public interest law firms that meet on 8.30 every uh, Wednesday, first Wednesday of the month, and he's always there offering guidance and advice, and that's still here from him. He's somebody who we need and count on for guidance. Um, he's in the Pennsylvania Bar Association House of Delegates. He's on the board of my organization, on the Philadelphia Legal Assistance. Um, he writes articles sort of for the popular legal press on the right to counsel. Um, and he writes academic articles, including one recent one on the uh, rules of ethics and law and public interest practice. 
Um, he's a critical resource at the law school for all the people who are doing public interest. Um, it feels like he is everywhere and he does everything. Um, but the remarkable thing about all of that is even with that kind of agenda, Lou is always available to have in-depth and attentive conversations with individuals. Whether it is a student with a research question or a personal problem, an old client who presents a new legal twist, a colleague at the law school, a practitioner who needs advice, Lou makes himself available. He drops everything. He's incredibly prepared. Um, and he will have a deep and helpful conversation to steer someone on a better path. He asks the hard questions, but he also helps to answer them. He shows that he cares, he supports, and he inspires, and he makes us all better people as a result. Um, I could say much more, but I think I'll end by saying that it makes so much sense for Lou to be receiving this award for ethics, and, and not just legal ethics, because we um, legal practitioners are too often kind of lawyerly parsing word for word what rules of ethics may mean. Um, what Lou understands is ethics in a much bigger sense, ethics that include not just justice and fairness and rationality, but love, compassion, and hope, and a commitment to make the world a better place for all. You will hear that today, so let me stop and get closer to hearing the man speak. So, thank you very much. Of our society and to improving our system of justice. 
So as you know, I've been asked to take a few minutes today to tell you about my experience and to share why he's deserving of this award. First of all, Lou is an incredible lawyer, perhaps the best lawyer I've ever encountered. And I'm sorry, I know that this is going to embarrass you at least a little bit, but the qualities that contribute to his success as a lawyer are the same ones that allow him to excel in all the areas that I've already mentioned. Of course, he has the basics. He's smart, knowledgeable, proficient in the law in numerous substantive areas. He's diligent, he's conscientious, and tireless in his efforts to advocate on behalf of his clients. Never complacent or willing to just accept the status quo, he chooses to take on hard cases, challenging issues, and to represent clients whose causes may be unpopular. In addition to all of the above, Lou has incredibly good judgment. He's insightful and thoughtful about all of the parties involved in every interaction. These insights enable him to engage in careful analysis and effective strategic planning. How does he come to have this knowledge and insight? He believes in the absolute dignity of every human being, regardless of their resources or life circumstances. He treats everyone with respect, and he listens when others speak. He truly listens. You never get the sense that he's only seeming to listen while he's focused on the next thing that he's going to say. How do you know that? When you come to Lou, for those of you who know him, with a question or a dilemma, he never responds by giving you his opinion or an answer. He always responds with a series of questions. I'm sure that he poses these questions in order to gather more detailed information um, about your situation, but it is also clear that his questions serve to help you formulate your own thoughts and clarify your own goals and ideas. He has joined you in your quest for a solution and he is engaged in your question with you. Who brings these same qualities to his teaching, both in supervising cases and in the classroom? He has inspired hundreds of students to become reflective practitioners who zealously advocate for their individual clients in the context of the broader policy questions that are present in every case. He's always looking for new ways to bring these lessons home, whether by involving a judge in a concluded case to come to class and share her perspectives, or by creatively marshalling resources to solve systemic problems. One example of this work has been in the area of civil forfeiture of real property. For those of you who are not lawyers, these are cases in which the local prosecutor can legally seize a house that has been used for illegal drug activity, even when the homeowner was not involved in any illegal action. Lou quickly identified the enormous imbalance between the power of the state through the prosecution and innocent individuals faced with losing their homes with no ability to defend themselves in a system they can't understand. He started out by representing individual clients, expanded his advocacy, and included his students in the endeavor. Through a combination of negotiation or attempted negotiation with the local district attorney's office, research investigation, writing articles in both scholarly and other professional publications, and collaboration with journalists, Lewis succeeded in bringing attention to a little-known problem that plagues his client's community. His students have also learned how a combination of multiple forms of advocacy, along with patience, optimism, and a long-term vision, can bring about solutions to difficult legal and social problems. Lastly, Lou is a leader in the legal community, which you've already heard his accomplishments are too numerous to mention. All of his work, including in the legal academy, is focused on moving our institutions to improve the quality of justice. As you've already heard, he, he's recognized as someone who gives wise counsel. His discretion is impeccable, as is his tact 
and diplomacy. He is always able to frame issues in a way that brings people together. As a result, he's been asked to serve as a consultant and facilitator for difficult organizational transitions and is constantly sought out as an advisor by his former students and by countless other lawyers in the public interest community. And even with all his accomplishments, Lou continues to do the work every day. He puts in long hours and never complains, and I too never know how it is that he does half of the things that he does. Blessed with a sunny disposition, he's always smiling. He's always supportive of others' work and never demands the spotlight. It is always about the work and the clients. It is never about him. And he never says a bad word about anyone else. Perhaps this is the key to the reputation that Lou has earned and that I first heard about before I even met him. Lou really is truly an exemplary lawyer, teacher, role model, and mentor who always acts with integrity and a clear sense of purpose. Lou believes that if done right, there is nobility in the practice of law. He embodies that belief, inspires others to believe it, and elevates the practice of all those around him.
chair, and I can't think of two more wonderful colleagues um, who have been such partners for so long. Thank you both for being here today. Now, how do I live up to all this uh, hype here? I'm worried, you know? Um, I don't usually get a little nervous, but I'm getting a little nervous here listening to all of this. So, um, um, I'm truly honored, though, and, um, you know, I received a call from Dr. Gurley, and he informed me that I had been selected um, for this award, and I have to admit, I'm going to be honest here, um, I had never heard of the Praxis Award. So, um, now, I do know that fans of Star Trek, and my wife is a big fan of Star Trek, uh, recognize that Praxis was a moon that orbited the Klingon home, right? <laughs> And it was destroyed in Star Trek Into Darkness and I think in Star Trek Six as well. So I, I was wondering what was Dr. Gold trying to tell me, you know, about my body of work. Was you know, were my writings teaching and advocacy so far out there that they deserved a similar fate? But I've come to learn uh, that's not what I had in mind. And um, uh, and I, I really do think it's so important. Um, to embrace the concept of praxis. And it may mean different things um, to different folks, but for me at least, it does mean um, the real practical application of theory to really examine the gap between theory and practice and to connect our ethical underpinnings of all of our professions and our work to the well-being of the communities in which we live and serve uh, as a whole. And I am especially grateful to be here today to speak with you. Now they told me that I had to give a half hour lecture. So those of you who are hungry, I apologize. Those of you who have to leave, I understand. Um, but I have to live up to my ethical obligation to give you a half hour lecture. So I'm going to talk about a topic that you may have already guessed, and that's justice. I don't think there's a more important. You know, a Carnegie Foundation report that studied medical and teacher education posited that there are six major dimensions along which professionals must function, regardless of their specialty. Professionals employ fundamental knowledge and skills derived from an academic base. They make decisions under conditions of uncertainty. They engage in complex practice. They learn from experience. They create and participate in responsible professional communities, and they have the ability and willingness to provide public service. It is that dimension that I want to speak with you about tonight. The ability and the willingness to provide public service, particularly as professionals in the law. It is certainly a timely subject. New York Times editorial in 2011 reported that American legal education is in crisis. The economic downturn has left many recent law graduates saddled with crushing student loans and need shop job prospects. Yet, at the same time, more and more Americans find they cannot afford any legal help. The New York Times called for changes to legal education and perhaps most importantly, how the legal profession sees its responsibility to serve the public interest. This is so important. The fundamental values of our democracy are expressed in the inspiring words of our Declaration of Independence 
and in the legal framework of our Constitution. Our founders not only declared independence, but also built a national government sufficiently strong and flexible to meet the needs of the Republic, but yet sufficiently limited and just to protect the guaranteed rights of citizens. In 1892, our fundamental values were actually expressed in the creation of the Pledge of Allegiance. It was created by Francis Bellamy, a Baptist minister, who published a children's magazine. It was his intent to instill in the minds of American youth a love for country and the principles upon which it was founded. The United States Congress adopted, recognized this pledge for the first time on June 22, 1942. And the text of the Pledge of Allegiance has been amended four times since its original creation, adding most recently uh, the phrase under God in the most recent revision in 1954. The final six words of the pledge, however, have not changed at all since its creation more than 120 years ago. In 1892 and today, our Pledge of Allegiance ends by expressing perhaps the most enduring values of our democracy with liberty and justice for all. It is that promise of justice that I will speak about today. For most of its history, the United States Supreme Court did not have a permanent home. It met in Philadelphia, it met in Washington, and a variety of places. But on October 13, 1932, Chief Justice Charles F. Laid the cornerstone of the Supreme Court's permanent home in Washington, D.C., at which he said, The Republic endures, and this is the symbol of our faith. The building was constructed in classical Corinthian architectural style and on the same scale as other government buildings, representing that they were a co equal branch of government. But inscribed above the 16 marble columns, on the main west entrance to the court are the words, equal justice under law. These words express the promise that as the final arbiter of law, the Supreme Court is entrusted with ensuring to the American people the equal justice of the law. This overarching value is also expressed in the judicial oath to which all federal judges are sworn. Under that oath, judges promise to administer justice without respect persons and to do equal right to the poor and to the rich. This is the essence of equal justice. But is it our actual experience? Or is it, as Stanford Law Professor Deborah Roby has argued, that the promise of equal justice under law is a rhetorical flourish commonly encountered in ceremonial rhetoric that comes nowhere close to describing the justice system of practice. Or, stated differently, is it as the award-winning, inspiring song, Glory, from the Motion Picture Song, by Common and John Legend, suggests justice for all, just ain't specific enough. Professor Rody goes a step further. It's a shameful irony that the nation with the most lawyers has among the least adequate systems for human services. It is more shameful still 
that the inequities attract so little concern. So what we've learned over the past several decades is that the legal needs of the poor are substantial and unmet. The New York Times editorial put it this way, most low-income Americans cannot afford a lawyer to defend their legal interests no matter how urgent the issue. Sustained cuts in federal funding, reductions in legal aid staffing, and a recession has swelled the ranks of the poor, all contributing to pushing access to legal help beyond reach for too many Americans. Legal need studies in Pennsylvania have found generally that only one in five low-income people who experience a legal problem are able to get help from any source. And even more troubling, the poor who seek legal help represent only a fraction of those who really need legal assistance. It's not hard to understand why. When the Legal Services Corporation was started in 1974, signed by President Nixon and Dick Law, 12% of the population was financially eligible. Today, due to soaring poverty levels, maybe 21% of Americans are now eligible. Yes, federal funding for civil legal aid has dropped substantially in the last 20 years. Poverty has reached some of its highest levels in 50 years. Today, Philadelphia, for example, has the unfortunate recognition of being the highest poverty rate of any problems only growing worse. So why is it important that the poor have access to legal representation? As a young legal aid attorney, and it was a time when I was a young legal aid attorney, um, last week I had the car in the office. More than 30 years ago, I learned the answer to that question. Hester was a 50-year, six-year-old woman with marginal education who had been employed as a domestic worker most of her life. And she came into my office for the first time. She suffered from a long history of chronic pancreatitis, chronic arthritis, recurring ulcer, and irritable bowel syndrome. In other words, she was having a great deal of trouble eating. She was often vomiting. She was gagging. She had incapacitating diarrhea and disabling stomach pain as well. This was confirmed in the medical records, and it was apparent to me as she barely had the strength to walk into the office. Her weight was down to 88 pounds. But believe it or not, she had just been thrown off the disability rolls of Social Security. The agency hadn't found that her condition had improved sufficient to enable her to engage in substantial gainful employment. Social Security benefits were her only income. And the only thing standing between her and wealth, between some notion of dignity and despair, she was frightened, and I still remember her asking me over and over again, how can they say I can work? Why won't they believe me? Why won't they believe my doctors? At that point, the Social Security decision was a final decision, and I filed a complaint in the United States District Court, asking the federal court to review and reverse the agency's decision. You see, it was the early 1980s, and federal courts were becoming increasingly aware that the administration was literally throwing hundreds of thousands of disabled recipients off the rolls with a shameful display of indifference to some of our most vulnerable citizens. The case was assigned to the late Chief Judge Joseph Lord, one of the finest federal judges. <coughs> and he reversed the government's decision 
writing the following words in his mind. This case presents an appalling example of sheer bureaucratic dishonesty. The evidence shows overwhelmingly that the claim is totally disabled, and for the administrative law judge to hold otherwise is an indulgence in the most blatant hypocrisy. If the purpose of the United States Department of Health and Human Services is to crush defenseless human beings, as it seems to be, it would succeed unless in cases like this, courts interpose a protective law. Now you might think this is the end of the story, but it was not. My client called to say she still had received her benefits. I called the government's lawyer, Days turned into weeks. Still no money, no benefits. I filed a contempt motion against the United States, seeking attorney fees to try to get some leverage. Still no money for my client. And then I learned the power of the fourth estate. Newsweek called up after reading the judge's order and asked if they could interview my client. I arranged for that. She was soon featured in uh, an article in the weekly magazine on the crisis of Social Security. The very next day, after the magazine hit the stands, I received a call from the government's lawyer. They were federally expressing the client's chapter. Now, it shouldn't take a lawyer, a federal court, and a national magazine to get Social Security benefits to a person who is so clearly entitled. But let's be honest, what would have happened if there was no lawyer for this 56 year old woman? And how many might have never got the benefits they richly deserved and needed, along with the dignity that comes with it? Because justice for all, too often, means justice for only some, those who can afford it. The growing inequality of wealth in this country presents a special danger and threat to our civil justice system. Rich being further separated from the poor and the poor forgotten. Um, it is driving in our democracy legislation and public policy toward special treatment of those who need it least and away from the social and educational needs of those who need it most. Stark inequality really poses a special threat to our justice system where their access is diminished beyond reach. The legal, the legal profession has a special ethical obligation and responsibility for the quality of justice. We memorialize that in our rules of professional conduct, but we must ask ourselves, is the profession living up to this challenge. There are reasons to be unsure. In Pennsylvania alone, we watch in distress as example after example of ethical disgrace occurs. From kids for cash in Missouri County to the sharing of racist emails among our highest judicial officials, to political corruption touching our highest courts, to culture of fixing tickets, our judges in traffic court, the exchange of faith between judges and the administration of justice, 
allegations of intentional grand jury abuse for political purpose, the list goes on. It is in the face of such greed and corruption and dishonesty that we must honor the decent and committed and caring folks. Lawyers for the poor who forego the wealth and the perks of the profession for the serious challenges of making justice accessible to everyone. <coughs> I know some of you here tonight, and I applaud all of you for what you do for us. I have, um, in typical fashion, uh, not a half hour, actually, could be an hour, actually, so I'm going to skip over a couple of things. <laughs> Um, and I'm happy to talk with you. Um, but I'm, I do want to say a few things about the challenge for the future. Um, it is time to recognize that the funding mechanism for civil justice fun functions exactly the opposite of how it should. Resources for legal help to the poor evaporate just when they need it the most. In times of low budgets, budget woes that we face, as the need of the population grows for legal help, what happens? The funding for legal aid drops. And that's true not only in federal funding, but other programs like Pennsylvania and Iota, um, which uh, is the second largest funding source for legal aid. So when the poor need the lawyers the most, the funding streams that make it possible go down. Leading a serious justice gap in the way. So, providing free legal assistance to the poor, though, is not only the ethical thing to do, it makes good economic sense. Until recently, we could really not study the economic impact of state and local governments from such work. Recent economic impact studies, however, point to highly favorable economic returns to local communities from each dollar spent on legal aid. A Pennsylvania study, for example, in 2011, found that for every dollar spent on civil legal aid to the poor, that investment returned more than $11 in direct economic benefits to local communities. More research is needed on this question, for sure. But legal aid is a sound investment in boosting the economic health. So what is the legal profession doing in support of our civil justice First, we all must support full funding for legal services. We must aspire to the gold standard of full representation for as many indigent families as we possibly can. Full representation is what corporations and wealthy individuals expect. They deserve it. They receive it when their vital interests are threatened. And our constitutional guarantees demand no less for those who don't have the financial resources to acquire. Second, we must work toward a right to counsel in the most serious of civil matters. In 2006, the American Bar Association called on federal and state jurisdictions to provide counsel as a matter of right, what we call sometimes civil idiot respect to the civil, to the Gideon versus Wayne White decision of the Supreme Court. Um, called on us a right to 
counsel at public expense for low-income persons in adversarial proceedings involving basic human needs like shelter and sustenance and safety and health and child custody. And since 2006, there's been a resurgence in the movement to bring uh, right to counsel. Third, the Conference of Chief Justices has called upon states to establish Blue Ribbon Access to Justice Commissions to bring together stakeholders to study the problems of access to justice before and to formulate real mean solutions. Today, 31 states have such Blue Ribbon Commissions. Nine others are actively considering it. Pennsylvania does not. We should. Fourth, we must get serious about pro bono representation from all lawyers. Ethical rules require lawyers to perform pro bono legal assistance. And in large measure, legal aid programs that work very closely with bar associations, with law firms, nonprofits, and with law schools to build innovative pro bono initiatives that deliver high quality representation to the poor. All lawyers can do well by doing good. But it's particularly important now as business-driven decisions increasingly dominate our legal practice, pro bono legal assistance keeps the profession centered on core values like legal justice, like the fair administration of justice, which the Conference of Chief Justices is also the cornerstone of our But you get, I think, the sense of the message that I'm trying to deliver. Um, there's so much work to be done. Um, and we all have to be part of the solution. And there was a wonderful article, and I was going to summarize it for you, but I'm not going to do that. In the Sunday Times magazine recently about um, the detention camps in the United States. I hope some of you saw that. And you saw the role that pro bono lawyers can play um, in helping to protect the safety of women and children who flee um, the extreme violence, particularly in Central America, and come to the United States with the hope, the hope that our founders came to this country. And they sit and they wait for deportation hearings before judges without legal counsel, almost all of them return to the violence, which is even more severe and having fled and they're targeted. And that article pointed out that of 15 cases that got lawyers, volunteer lawyers, 14 of them successfully got aside for their money issue. But all of them were deported back. As one put it, it was really just a mandate for those children to have. Because as they returned, or they caught up, the children were killed when they returned to Honduras and to Guatemala. Um, that goes on in the name of the United States of America, and we all have something to do about that. So I'm sorry about it. Full story on that, but um, you can read that in Sunday Times Magazine. Um, what I would like to do is
to say that ultimately I don't look to the future. I'm always an optimist, those who know me. And ultimately, these challenges lie in the hands of the next generation of lawyers. So I want to talk to the students. And we had a wonderful lunch earlier today with uh, so many students. And they are really the inspiration. And it's why clinical legal education and pro bono requirements in our law schools and our universities are so important. They help law students develop lawyering skills for sure. But more importantly, they expose every law student to segments of our population for whom the laws promise for sure. They learn firsthand the ethical dimensions of what it means to be a lawyer. And we're going to talk a little bit about civil forfeiture. And so I want to share with you a story. Um, the Penn Legal Clinic had been working especially hard in the area of civil forfeiture. And she explained to me, a person can lose their home even though they're never convicted or even charged with a crime. It's a very harsh law. Um, and it was intended to go after large you know, cartels and drug traffickers, but it's been unleashed against ordinary citizens in our communities with devastating results. But it's also a complex area of the law um, that really um, is beyond you know, that ability of anyone to handle it on their own. Not long ago, a husband, a husband and wife living in North Philadelphia, and they called them Mary and Leon because they had given us permission to use their names. They came to the clinic after being served with a petition by the district attorney's office seeking to forfeit their home for three alleged $20 marijuana sales by their adult son, one of which allegedly occurred on the porch of their home. Mary and Leon were 68 and 70 years of age. They were solid citizens. They had never been involved with the law in their whole lives. They were never charged with a crime or convicted of a crime. Leon was a former steel plant. Mary was a retail saleswoman and a former block captain in the community. Their home was all paid up, and they now lived on very modest means financially qualified for food and services. And they were frightened. Frightened about the prospect of losing their home at their age with nowhere to go. Frightened for their adult son, who was now facing criminal charges for a drug offense, and how they were going to help him through that crisis in his life. Frightened because Leon was battling pancreatic cancer at the same time, and they needed to spend a lot of time in the hospital and with doctors. They didn't know what to do, and they didn't understand why their home was being taken by the state when they hadn't done anything wrong. Their story was featured in the New Yorker magazine, Lee article taken, with their permission. And at first, they didn't want their identities disclosed. Um, but finally, they decided they would do so if it could help someone else. That's the kind of folks they want. Uh, folks that you like instantly. Folks who never hurt anyone else, who cared about their names. And if ever an elderly couple needed to be loved, it was Mary and Mary. Pitted against the power of the state, too poor to afford a lawyer, worried about their son, frightened that they would lose their home, Involved in a legal battle that was complex. The situation really defines how important the concept of legal justice really is. For certainly, if you were in that situation, 
higher order. To balance the scales of justice, to protect the most important possession, perhaps, of your life, your family home. Indeed, uh, who needs to have to battle this battle? We are also battling health and uh, serious challenges of age. And so the question is, how can we promise equal justice under the law if we're unwilling to promise a lawyer for Mary and Leon? This is why adequate funding is so important. This is why right to counsel uh, is what is the next major challenge of our civil justice system. Now, Mary and Leon's story has a good ending. With the help of bright and dedicated law students in the clinic, one of my colleagues, Susanna Greenberg, is here from Penn Law School. We present statutory and constitutional defenses to the action. Mary and Leon save their home and could turn to the other challenges in their life. But for so many others, they want to love. And every day, most civil, most civil matters, both in America, I've been very fortunate in my life. Um, I've had the wonderful support and the love of my family here, my lovely wife, my partner Carol, my son Steve, my daughter Annie. I'm so proud of all of them. I lost my mom just a few months ago. 95. I know she would have liked to have been here. She really, along with my father, defined what it meant coming from the British generation. We have a great responsibility to future generations. And I've had the love and support of my colleagues. You heard from two today, and you can see that I've been blessed. And I want to thank all of you who came today. Um, you are all very special, and this award is very special. So I'm going to close now. I'm going to close with a scene from a Hollywood movie. My colleagues at the clinic, as the Rachel Mayor, when she smiles, she knows what's coming. My colleagues at the clinic know that I love to bring film into the classroom to demonstrate important points. A few weeks ago, um, actually, Susanna was teaching this class. Um, and um, it was a class on direct examination. And there's a great scene from a movie, Philadelphia, one of my favorite movies, which nicely demonstrates how in direct examination the lawyer should fade into the background, and it's the time for the witness, the client, to take center stage and tell the story. And as you probably know, the film Philadelphia tells the story of Andrew Beckett, played by Tom Hanks, a senior associate and star at the largest corporate law firm in Philadelphia. Beckett is gay and is an AIDS patient, hiding both from the partners of his film. As lesions appear on his face, the short telltale sign of uh, carpacity sarcoma, a form of cancer associated with AIDS, he takes time off for a few days to hide his and he's assigned the responsibility of preparing a legal document in the firm's most important case, 
He does not come home. He brings it to the firm and leaves it with an assistant to get it fired. The deadline is upon him, and the firm can't find the paperwork. If found, we're looking for it, they don't know where it is, as the deadline inches closer and closer. Finally, the paperwork is found and filed at the last possible moment. Beckett is fired by his partners, and he believes that his work was intentionally sabotaged to give the firm an excuse to fire him because of his AIDS diagnosis. Beckett finds, tries to find a lawyer to represent him. Can't find him. No one will take his case. He begins to represent himself. But finally, he gets a lawyer. Joe Miller, played by Denzel Washington, um, who agrees to take the case after he turned it down because he saw how Folks around Beckett shunned him because of his disease. So Miller takes the case, and we now are in that court scene. With Beckett on the stand, being questioned by his lawyer, Denzel Washington, and we show this scene in class to help the students understand an effective direct examination, but it holds much greater meaning for all. Miller asks Beckett whether he is a good lawyer. And when Beckett says yes, Miller asks him why. Beckett responds that he loves the law. And Miller then asks the question, what do you love about the law? It is Beckett's response that is so illustrative for us. And I will share it with you. But admittedly, Without the music in the background. <laughs> and the drama of courtroom 243 in Philadelphia City Hall, where the film was actually filmed. I can't replicate that. Miller asks the question Andrew, what do you love about the law? Beckett responds Many things. What I love most about the law. Every now and again, not often, but occasionally, you get to be part of justice being done. It is really quite a thrill when that happens. Ladies and gentlemen, it really is a thrill to see justice being done. And we have a collective responsibility to see that it's done. Not occasionally. Earn those words on the front.